Hello there. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and like a lot of people, I like to talk about movies with my friends. This week, I connected with two delightful critics and programmers, Nick Pinkerton and Nellie Killian. You'll have encountered Nick's criticism in a variety of publications, as well as DVD essays and commentary. And Nellie's superb series, Tell Me, Women Filmmakers, Women's Stories, is featured on Criterion Channel this month. I gleaned some valuable tips on organizing my daily movie watching, and we talked about the last thing we've been watching. That includes a pre-code film by William Wellman called Lily Turner, the extraordinary documentary series Eyes on the Prize about the civil rights movement, two movies by Robert Altman, Dr. T and the Women, and Beyond Therapy, and more. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and thank you for listening. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, a podcast about the movies, which we watch and talk about to stave off fears of imminent death. Um, It's also fun, apart from the threat of death. But enough of the pick-me-up opening. Uh, I'd like to introduce my latest comrades in watching movies, and that is Nellie Killian and Nick Pinkerton, two esteemed critics, programmers, all-around amazing folk. Uh, Hello, Nick. Howdy. Hello, Nellie. What's going on, Nick? (laughs) Not much. I I, I think... Nick, nice to see you. (laughs) Yeah, already there's just mass confusion here. Well, are you both doing all right? Faring well, staying indoors, using hand sanitizer, etc. None of the above. None of the above. <laughs> You're just Strut- rampaging through the streets, strutting down the street like that, uh, like the Bob Crumb uh, keep on trucking guy. That's the kind of gait that I have when I hit the streets. <laughs> Wearing a kind of ill-fitting sack and exactly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And 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 Nelly, are, are you I, also? I- doing you know pretty good well things are <laughs> um i find i do find there's like enough to amuse me during the day and i have the excuse of walking the dog to leave my apartment at intervals which is quite nice yeah no that's i've i've i've, I've happily followed uh, the various updates with uh ralph it's okay if i, I name I name, or, oh yeah yeah he's not. should we bleep that out <laughs> no, no. just don't give his last name uh, okay. <laughs> um i feel like there was a period early on where i had anxiety about how often i had to leave the house with the dog hmm. and that at some point i started to feel pretty comfortable with my ability to go outside and not get near anyone and now i really am very happy that i'm forced out of my house three or four times a day yeah, I, I can see that would be a very good thing to have as as I just think about whether or not I went outside yesterday and can't quite remember. Um, so it would be nice to have someone reminding me to do that. Yeah, and I mean, uh, he also just like needs exercise. So like I try and take a longer walk. Yeah, right. <laughs> it is good thinking for whatever reason, I can't prioritize my own uh, physical need for exercise, but the dog, um, I'll do it for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting is I is since both of you, I think, 
already watch a lot i i would i would think uh i mean but you're watching even more now do you think or 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 less or yeah absolutely like there's a most of the professional obligation driven viewing has been bumped out not all of it um but what's left can be kind of consigned to office hours instead of the evening so i have evenings in the main free to a degree that's very unusual for me Mm. um because you know very often uh in the old world, as I've now taken to calling it, um, <laughs> in the days before the plague came, uh, you know, a lot of my evening viewing would be determined by various professional obligations. But now that uh, my professional existence is negligible at most, um, I have total leeway to put my bill of fare together as I see fit. And do you have any particular way of of, of structuring what what you watch, or uh, that 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 works for you? Well, everything's very like regimented now. Uh, from rising, which you know is one major variable, um, to <laughs> dinner time. I mean, most of that is quite structured. And then when uh, the sun goes down, I generally start. A screening schedule and what it's worked out to at least right now is trying to account for a descending uh, capacity to concentrate uh, so I'll usually start with right now at least I've been starting the evening with a silent uh, after dinner um and uh a little sort of digestive reverie uh throw on a silent uh as i mentioned to you i've been doing a uh, complete uh our gang little rascals rewatch uh right now i'm smack in the middle of 1929 so uh blaze a couple rascals after uh the silent um maybe something else in addition to that it's recently been working out that i'll roll into something from the early 30s after that um the last few nights i did uh wellman's lily turner um alfred e green's union depot um tay garnett's one-way passage you know just these very nice you know, 65, 67 minute, uh, get in, get out, pre-code, uh, heaters. And then, uh, because I'm, uh, gradually getting sozzled in order to, uh, <laughs> sleep, I'll usually go for something fairly brain damaged by the end of the night. Uh, as I said, I've been doing trauma rewatches currently, on the third Toxic Avenger film, uh, but not strictly Toxic Avengers. Also, been doing like a lot of like uh, music documentaries. I watched the wonderful Mystify on uh, In Excess frontman Michael Hutchins. Um, oh, wow. But you know, uh, or I watched this. Uh, I think 
maybe four-year-old documentary about John McAfee, Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee. Yeah, um, you know, things that are not going to demand an uh, incredible amount of above reptilian brain intelligence from me. <laughs> and then I'll toddle to bed and uh, re- read the uh, autobiography of Dayton Daily News, Cincinnati Reds correspondent, Hal McCoy. I'll, I'll read like one and a half pages of the real McCoy, Hal McCoy's autobiography, <laughs> and then drift off into slumber land. That, well, that, that sounds like a very full meal there. Yeah, my life's fucking incredible right now. <laughs> I think with uh, sort of the world at my fingertips uh, via the internet, I've decided to limit myself in some ways. Um, I've been using the save feature on um, various streaming services, which I have never used in the past. Um, and typically at the beginning of the month, I'll go through what's leaving at the end of the month on Criterion and a couple other things and add them all to my library if I haven't seen the film or um, have seen it but don't have the strong recollection of it. And then I just sort of work my way through that stockpile, which interestingly, often watching movies, I really have not that much interest in watching. Um, And I've occasionally been pretty pleasantly surprised. but yeah, I feel like it, it's nice to have a little bit of an external um, roster of films. Yeah. Just spending the you know evening, I don't know, like browsing an infinitude of options. Right. Yeah. Going through the usual infinite scroll yeah. with the 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 invisible hand of of, of an algorithm there. And of course, um, like you know, other I'll also if something's on PCM, I'll watch it or whatever too. But. Uh, yeah, not doing a whole lot of like searching for movies to watch, just trying to watch the things that I'd always wish I'd wished I'd seen that are available to me. Yeah. Yeah. What and you've also been uh undertaking a bit of a documentary uh project. Yeah, um uh, a few friends uh were all it just was a sort of I think coincidence we all were watching uh, Shoah towards the beginning of quarantine and we had a discussion group um, Matt Wolf is sort of the ringleader um, whose film uh, Spaceship Earth is available now on Hulu and various uh, VOD platforms um, and yeah Shoah was incredible uh, and you know a great the discussions were really great and then after that we watched Eyes on the Prize which we actually for various scheduling reasons, we just had our last talk uh, earlier this week. Um, and yeah, it's been nice to, again, it's like an external thing too, of just being like, well, I have to watch my episodes of Eyes on the Prize before our talk tomorrow. <laughs> uh, <Right. laughs> um, but Eyes on the Prize is really fascinating and it's available. Um, it's sort of uh, famously been difficult to see Um the civil rights movement, you know, of course, to sort of depict it without including a lot of the music would really, I think, not be, would be like a disservice, you know, and um, they included just uh, needle drop after needle drop after needle drop in this miniseries. And um, 
the right situation was a disaster, you know, and um, it was super unavailable for years Um, and has been re-released on, was rebroadcast at some point, um, I think in the early 2000s and then uh, possibly reprinted on DVD, but there's an educational streaming site called facinghistory.org where you can watch it with a free, it's a free subscription to join and then you can watch it. Um, which is, I just happened upon that, um, resource while, uh, trying to figure out how I was going to watch it for this, um, this group. So I would definitely suggest it. I mean, it's, it's sort of a, it was made in two chunks. Uh, the first, the first is, um, the fifties through the mid to late sixties. And then, uh, the second section takes you up to, um, Jesse Jackson's first run for president loosely and um, the evo- seeing the evolution of the movement over a course of like 40 years it's made in the 80s and 90s when so many people are still alive and you have you know on the ground first person accounts of like these various uh, historical moments historical um, sort of atrocities uh, on American soil uh, and yeah it's great um, is it and is it, so is mo, is a lot of it uh, interviews uh, or but or, or are they also like drawing on you know news newsreel verite yeah. stuff as well? Yeah, I mean I, they even talk about it a lot in the in the beginning. Um, the ways in which the civil rights movement was like training a lot of local TV how to cover live news. Hmm. Um, that there is this. Um, immediacy to the coverage of a lot of it that I think was like fairly novel at the time. Um, and it's, it's amazing. I mean, like the, you've seen so much of the footage, but, um, hearing the people talk and like, also like explaining certain things that are happening in ways that, um, I think add a level of tactile detail to what you're seeing like uh, there's this one point where I believe it's one of the interviews points out in uh, a piece of historical footage, how the fire hoses are stripping the bark off the tree Mm. that they're hitting. And, you know, then you like look at it and you see that that's what's happening. And, you know, of course everyone's been told uh, the sort of violent force of a fire hose, but like actually having someone be like, well, you can see with what's happening to that tree. And like, all of a sudden you're like, yeah, that, you know, it gives it this, uh, practical analog. That's really graspable, I guess. But, um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's leaving, it's leaving, it's all leaving a mark. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's so, there's so much of that. And like, you know, the various sort of, as it moves on, I think the various ways that things sort of diverge from like these legislative legislative victories to like these, you know, various different movements um, and the ways in which they're connected to uh, the era of the civil rights movement that people are more familiar with, but don't necessarily um, see how it's just absolutely a continuum. It's really great. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah. <clears throat> how, many, how, how long is that about total? It's a 14 hour-ish long episode, so 14 hours. Well, um yeah. Well, yeah, watching a little bit of of that each each day might uh I don't know, it's I sort of wonder whether you know what what kind of movements will be arising out of the the current 
the current times. Well, um, it's fascinating in that regard too, because uh, you're seeing just really the evolution of these tactics and movements and, um, you know, these various organizations that all have different ideas about um, what kind of work to prioritize, also about like how to position things and like the frictions between them, but also like even in terms of like how different people think of optics and things like that. It's really fascinating to see the actual sort of labor and like the organization behind organizing, um, which is, and across organizations too, you know, that it's uh, the way that all these Places were sometimes in conflict, but coming together on these issues, it's really good. I mean, and it's really, um, there's a lot of things about it that's very difficult to imagine how anything like it could exist now. It's very, like, historically specific and, like, you know, things are just vastly different now, obviously. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, it feels like, I, I don't know, to a certain extent, the kind of dual... Um, aftermath of, of the 60s was was both th- that different types of you know uh, revolt or resistance were possible but also you know that anything like that was kind of belitt- belittled in the mainstream or in a way um, m- making it harder or whatever commodified well, not to sound I, like Chomsky or something so yeah, I think it, <laughs> it's just interesting seeing like the uh, you know so much of the power of nonviolent protest is that it's only it'll it's working against the threat a very real threat of violence and um and it's provocative right of that violence like you're basically daring people to show who they really are and putting your body on the line for that and not fighting back um and they talk a lot about like the just sort of physical training to like not uh protect yourself when you're being like attacked but also just thinking now about the ways in which violence is threatened and like neutered in this country with like all of these like gun protests around quarantine. Like, I just feel I I've been trying to think about like what threat of violence like means now, hmm. whatever it's like, I, I don't have a very clear thought about it, but like there's been many recent protests where people have been sort of violently quelled by the police and it's not really spoken of in the same way uh that these earlier protests were right you know have been sort of um viewed like historically i guess um the the idea of like provocation i think is interesting to me and like how much provocation is even really allowed yeah well that's something i really i want to track down uh eyes eyes on on the prize that's what's so interesting is what i mean one thing i am finding in this period is so that's like a 10 parts series, 14 parts. Uh, yeah. Sorry. That's a 14 part series. And I, I do find myself watching, you know, moving image works of, of different lengths or different forms now more readily and more than, than I, I think I usually would maybe just cause it's all kind of coming out of this same infinite place of, of the internet or streaming. So I just flipping around, you do that. And, and, and Nick, I mean, I, you've turned that into a, a, a strength as well by, programming in a way it's just a bill basically you have a like a, 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 a you know that's theater bill that i mean i don't know some version of it might have played in, in a bizarro uh, time traveling world where all those things could play at the same time it was any part of that to kind of uh, i don't know replicate going to a movie theater mm, no no uh because there is no replication i mean one thing that's become agonizingly clear in the course of this is that 
even this ideal home viewing situation is very much a cold comfort and very much a shabby substitute for the movie-going life that generally I, here in New York, thankfully, have been able to enjoy. Um, it, you know, it's it's absolutely like a I-can't-believe-it's-not-butter kind of experience. Um, I don't fool myself for a second that uh, I'm getting some kind of proper substitute. Uh, however, you know, you make do as best you can. And I, I mean, I do find that, you know, this has been going on a long time now, two odd months. Yeah. So even in the course of that, my predilections have drifted around a little bit. Like, I've settled in the early 30s um, recently, but uh, earlier on, I think I was sort of burrowing in in the mid-60s, and that's a curious thing, is like I find um, a lot of this is determined by... You know, less by ticking off like filmographies, either director, or actor, or whatever, and it's more sort of gravitating toward particular periods, particular places, uh, you know, kind of vibe driven. Hmm. Nelly, did you say you already looking at the th- also looking at the thirties? Is that what you're saying? Well, I actually, um, so the Columbia Noir series. I mean, I feel like. Uh, you know, me and nearly everyone else uh, who has the Criterion channel has watched a couple dozen noirs uh, so far in quarantine. But watching those and watching pre-code films, which, you know, are shown with, you know, regularity on TCM and quite a few are actually um, have been on the leaving at the end of this month over the past couple months on Criterion, my, hmm. my ultimate bar for what I want to watch. Um Right. In some ways, I feel like the, you know, I'm watching things. I mean, I, I hope this doesn't make me sound like too much of a bad uh, viewer, but I'm not watching everything with equal attention by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and some things I just kind of have on, like while I'm, you know, buzzing around the house. And um, it's been interesting if I, like, in periods where I was just watching those noir movies many of which i've seen you know multiple times in the past it's you know having these kind of like familiar beats um you know characters uh so much of the pleasure in a pre-code movie and noir is like moment to moment in addition to i guess like the pleasure of watching it as a whole like Mm -hmm. having a pre-code on and like just tuning in for a couple minutes of uh the chorus girls realizing they can put on the show a different way uh <laughs> it's yeah. like um i don't know it's been like a, a lot of my viewing has been much more in that mode well it that well that's that's funny because that that immediately makes me think of the 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 phrase you know that's where i came in you know which i i, I mean maybe sometimes apocryphal but the, the idea that people would just go to the movies and you know whether or not it was the beginning of the movie and then watch it to the point of when they came in when the movie restarts 
Yeah, I've just like been like leaving TCM on and I'll like take a shower and come <laughs> back and it's like, okay, like what are Buster Keaton and Jimmy Durante doing now? They're on a train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like uh it's I I think it is in part just cuz like time has been so weird and I don't know. Like yeah. uh, it is like nice to kind of like have the movie on sometimes without like actually paying attention to it. Yeah, um, which I, yeah. Again, like I watch things and pay attention too, but I, I'm definitely doing a lot of that sort of um, on in the background thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it would almost be tiring to watch everything with the same kind of amount of intensity, really. Um, yeah, well, I feel like when you have fewer hours to do things that you want to do, like you know, watching a movie, like you want to pay attention to it, like in a normal time. Yeah. Like, I'd go to the movies and, like, want to watch the movie. And, like, now it's, like, well, I'm kind of just, like, killing the days here in my apartment. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, like, white noise sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Nick, are you back with us? I am, yes. That was, uh, sorry, that was my super uh, at the door. There's oh. been a persistent <laughs> drip from my faucet that I'd really like to have addressed. Oh. But, unfortunately, he came while I was in the middle of recording I'm sorry. Podcast. So, so I guess I'll just have to live with that <laughs> slowly boring into my skull, driving me mad. I hope like, with every like drip you pose telltale heart. I also feel like we should we should mention though that Nick and I also have a weekly uh viewing appointment. Oh, That's I didn't correct. know that. What's yeah, that? Fridays Fridays at midnight. You were pointedly not invited. Everybody sort of made a point of <laughs> not having you in the mix at all uh we've been been doing a uh a sort of group text viewing of a film per week fridays at midnight and i don't know quite what the criterion i can't figure it out either yeah you know it's like it's like uh as uh, as Justice Potter Stewart said of pornography, you know it when you see it. Um, <laughs> thus far, we've viewed um, Steven Spielberg's Hook, which is still kind of the high we're trying to get back. No. Um, Ron Howard's Ron Howard's The Paper, um, uh-huh. Robert Altman's uh, Doctor T and the Women. That was the that was the apex for me. That was interesting. I had a wonderful time watching that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me more it's, about it's, it's. It's hard for me. I'm, you know, I I am a when when uh, when I'm when I give myself wholly when I have something playing. I may not always be my optimal viewer, but I am a pretty intent viewer. So it's it's difficult for me to fire off high quality wisecracks uh, <laughs> when. When I want to watch uh, Richard Gere swanning around the Dallas Metroplex. Uh. <laughs> well, I want I want to hear more about about Hook. What 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 did you make of of, of Hook on this this watch? I, I can't stop. I cannot stop thinking about talking about and living through Hook. <laughs> um, I imagine you're in a pirate's costume right now for this podcast. I mean, it's, it's it's such an absolute, total and complete boondoggle, and I, I you know I've known 
that it was a troubled shoot. I had not watched it since seeing it theatrically with my parents, uh, and wasn't particularly uh, enamored of it at the time. And then, you know, subsequently sort of accrued little dribs and drabs of information, i.e. Julia Roberts in a tailspin post uh, at the threshold of the altar breakup with Kiefer Sutherland being consistently faced on set um, <laughs> that this was uh, probably the high water mark of Dustin Hoffman in sex pest mode, but uh, dug up this, I think it was entertainment weekly set report from uh, the hook shoot, which just makes it sound like the most absolutely miserable um thing of all time uh you know with like a hoffman very irascible uh drinking on set like just everybody uh, you know total mess um the uh like extras who had been hired to play hooks pirate gang having been recruited from like long beach biker bars and becoming very disgruntled at this kind of caste system that had been set up, keeping them very much apart from uh, the superstars. The point is made in the piece, and it's something I had not thought a great deal about, that like Spielberg had not been to that point somebody who was prone to working with big, big stars. I mean, certainly... There are people who subsequently, after appearing in Spielberg films, you would come to think of as big, big stars. But I don't think, you know, for example, Richard Dreyfus was thought of as a like name above the marquee type talent uh, circa Jaws or Roy Scheider for that matter. So this being something of a um, outlier at that point for Spielberg and the possibility of, you know, particularly... Hoffman, somebody of Hoffman's temperament and reputation, maybe running a little bit roughshod over him. Um, so it's it's really been the gift that keeps on giving. Like uh, it's it's by no stretch of the imagination a pleasurable film to watch. Don't watch Hook. What's that? What's it? No one watch Hook. Um. <laughs> It's so like it's almost, not it's like two and a half hours long, which is also insane. Oh God! We started. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's. Uh... So it's not a movie that's capturing the the joy of, of childhood particularly. I mean, Quite it maybe captures something of childhood. <laughs> 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 it may capture the capture the terror and drudgery of childhood. Um, but yeah, there is not a, a not a moment that sets the heart soaring. Uh, even it is John Williams the score, right? We determined that. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, even like a very phoned-in uh, Williams. Just you know, it's one of those things where the gears are just not meshing at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I'll, I'll I'll bump that down on, on my that, to watch list. <laughs> talking about like a movie that like simply doesn't work. Uh, I have watched almost every Robert Zemeckis movie in quarantine. Um, like, those movies all just work. I mean, they're all, like, just, like, perfect um, 
I don't know. Polar Express, you were uh, want, sparking up Polar Express. Express. But um, I, I do feel like they're just like, a, you know, absolutely ideal quarantine watching. I mean, Castaway being an obvious hmm. one that I, I return to quite quite soon after taking to my apartment. <laughs> um, yeah, just really, um, yeah, little perfect films. Perfect yeah. little ca- capsule capsule form um, entertainment. Um, I I want to I want to hear also uh, about Doctor T and the women. Uh, I think I I somehow I have the sense that a lot of people are are picking out an Altman here and there at this time. Um, I don't know, but uh, I haven't heard much about Doctor T. How, how how did you find that? <sighs> yeah, I think there is. I think there is just a sort of general gravitation towards a second or third tier Altman. Um, Mm -hmm. Though I should say, like, earlier I had occasion to uh, revisit Beyond Therapy uh, because I had been writing for Criterion about um, Secret Honor uh, and specifically Philip Baker Hall's performance in Secret Honor. So... I was uh, going back and doing my due diligence with um, 80s Altman, uh, you know, the wilderness period Altmans. And there's so much to enjoy uh, in that run, which is, you know, outside of, let's say, Ocean Stiggs, it's very, very uh, heavily geared towards film adaptations of theater pieces, uh, including, um, in some cases, such as Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, uh, pieces that Altman would have originated on the stage. Um, And it's, it's some real, without a net, filmmaking beyond therapy in particular uh in particular is just such a tonally wild movie um really quite grating at times uh i mean after uh after i watched it i think the nearest point of comparison that i could go to was like fassbender's satan's brew just this like (laughs) utterly like uh, assaultive uh, dental drill kind of uh, film. Um, but I mean, that was the Altman stuff that I had been uh, revisiting earlier. And then, yeah, for one reason or another, uh, you landed because there, there's, I, I can speak only for myself, but like uh, I lose the script a little bit um, after say the middle 1990s i did not uh punctiliously uh see every altman picture so a lot of a lot of these are uh names only to me Gingerbread dr t man. included i do feel like uh with dr t in particular <laughs> um, there are a lot of like incredible things about the movie i mean the opening is this scene in the dr t's waiting room but during our viewing, I mentioned it, it kind of has like the bones of like a, of a thirties pre-code comedy. 
but it has this really sad tone and it's also like two hours long. Um, but one of the strangest things is Dr. T is like consistently like kind of like hateful about like the burden of all these women in his life. Yet it's like Shelley Long and like all of these actresses who are just such a pleasure when they're on screen. It doesn't actually even make sense that he is so, you know, whatever underfoot <laughs> by all these women who are actually like the bright spot in a movie that is like a little bit hateful. Mm. Um, very hateful sometimes. I don't know. I, I did enjoy it. Andy Richter also great performance. Wait, he's in that? I forgot. What is he he's again? One of like Richard Gere's hunting buddies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Along with also uh Robert Hayes from Airplane. Huh. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if people, everyone knows the, the premise of, of that, but it's it's basically kind of all orbiting around uh, Richard Gere as a OBGYN and his his all the women who are come to his practice, basically, yeah, right? Yeah, in our, in his three life. daughters who are Laura Dern, uh, Kate Hudson, and Tara Reid. Incredible. Um, oh, oh, <laughs> his wife has developed a, a complex. Um, <laughs> has developed a psychiatric complex that sort of mirrors dementia but is actually only affects women who are too deeply loved by their husbands yeah it's like uh, it's like it's like when michael douglas got uh, throat cancer from eating too much pussy so that that sort of situation going but it on turns her into like a you know turns farifasa into like a baby basically it <laughs> has to be institutionalized. I mean, it's. I I would honestly recommend it, but like you know, major grain of salt. <laughs> Wait, is that, uh, yeah, is, it's a it's is, a bit like uh, you know the the heart is a lonely hunter, where uh, you know all of the all of these peripheral characters are all unloading and placing the onus of their expectations and needs on this. Uh, sort of sounding board character in, in the McCullers book, uh, Deaf Mute uh, Singer. In this case, it's Dr. T who has to shoulder the burden of expectations, fantasies, et cetera, et cetera. The burden of Dr. T. It's <laughs> yeah. the alternate title, the the many, the thousand burdens of Dr. T. And also, then there's like a hurricane, I mean, or tornado or something. I mean... Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 right on the heels of Magnolia. It's 2000 right. Magnolia 99. And of course, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, second to none in his Altman worship. And it, it, it has a sort of frog storm esque, uh, you know, mm. act of God climax. That's, you know, utterly wackadoo uh, that involves Dr. T being uh swept up by a tornado a texas tornado and like deposited in mexico is he in mexico oh yeah uh where he winds up delivering a baby uh several thought at one and the same time of the opening of the michael jackson uh, black or white video where george went gets uh, blasted through the ceiling of his suburban <laughs> home and then lands in his easy chair among the Maori tribesmen. It's also, <laughs> kind of similar, similar set piece. The film also has like that weird Y2K thing where 
Richard Gere and Helen Hunt are like uh, flirting over golf. Everyone's always playing golf on dates, which I feel like was a, a brief. I want some <laughs> other some other instances of this. I can I think feel, of the aviator. I feel like there are 10,000 rom-coms <laughs> where like Sarah Jessica Parker is at a driving range. Anything <laughs> <laughs> wrong about that? It, it, not just. Can you her. name one of these ten thousand films? <laughs> no. I can't name any of them. Where and where, where does Tin Cup fit into this? I mean, Tin Cup is like definitely you know the mother. Tin of- Cup was proposed for uh, for this evening's viewing. I know, but I don't. I, I don't know if I'm it a swing vote. Which yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to see every frame of a of a Shelton film. <laughs> Wait, I don't feel like I can be dipping in and out of when the film Duran Shelton. <laughs> um, I I um, I also I don't remember the exact story of Beyond Therapy either. What's I just if you could give a little precis. Oh, gee. Well, it's a uh, it's an ensemble piece um, based on a play by Christopher Durang. Uh, quite a cast: uh, Cincinnati native Julia Haggerty, uh, Jeff Goldblum, um, Christopher Haggerty, Guest, Robert Hayes in uh, Doctor T, Julia Haggerty in Beyond Therapy. We have an airplane. What's in it? We have an airplane reunion brewing across these tracks. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, anyways, you've got this, like, roundelay of mixed-up Manhattanites, um, <laughs> neurotic Manhattanites, um, all whom are trying to pair off um, and getting hopelessly tangled in their attempts to do so, and as a sort of uh, conduit a staging ground where a lot of these people are meeting and mixing are the offices of their respective psychiatrists. Uh, Goldblum is a uh, bisexual guy who is living with Christopher Guest, but who is dabbling with uh, dating members of the opposite sex. It opens with he and Julie Haggerty going on a blind date uh, arranged through a personal column uh, at a French restaurant and indeed ends at said French restaurant with this very strange reveal where as we exit the restaurant, we get, I think, a crane pullback that shows us that the restaurant is in fact in Paris because Altman is uh, at this point in Paris, living in Paris, artist in exile. Um, hmm. I have no idea precisely what to do with that uh, little switcheroo. Um, <laughs> and and Durang, as I understand it, was pretty discontented with the adaptation. His complaint, and I haven't, I'm not familiar with the original play, so I, I, I can't comment one way or another, but his complaint being... Uh, something to the effect of a lot of the psychological uh, underpinning was thrown out the window. So you just have all of these people 
acting, you know, absolutely frothing at the mouth, uh, nuts throughout the entire thing. But I mean, that's rather what makes it like, you know, if you're watching, uh, you know, Howard Hawks's uh, 20th century, you have no interest in how these particular loons got to be the way that they are. It's just sort of the pleasure of uh, watching them go at one another tooth and claw. And uh, yeah, it's very effective in that like absolute breaks off kind of screwball way um yeah. I, I i before the in the before times i i i picked up a, a copy of christopher durang's a history of the american film um i guess is this like past pastiche uh parody he wrote um so i i, I but i thought most of the stuff he wrote was was pretty absurdist and nonsensical it's kind of funny imagining having any particular objections to any interpretation of what what he had written but uh i i, I want if, at the risk of jumping around I, I i i wanted to hear about um i mean I, actually any of the films you you mentioned at the at the top of the hour well, well especially like um you, you were mentioning seeing a william wellman movie oh yeah well lily turner is uh 1933 it's wellman and his uh frisco jenny star uh ruth chatterton also yeah. an aviatrix of note ruth chatterton um mm-hmm. and uh a uh young george brent and of course guy kibby i feel like i'm like i know guy kibby's face better than that of my own father at this point i'm looking at guy kibby every night um <laughs> uh and yeah i was joking uh that it you know it, it's practically a pre-code bingo card like it has everything the the wiki synopsis is just american pre-code melodrama about a woman who marries a bigamist then a drunk and falls in love with another man all while working at a carnival <laughs> um and you know there's a a crime of passion uh thrown in there for good measure um yeah i mean what can i say like uh, you simply cannot go wrong with early talky wellman uh frisco jenny also yeah. superlative uh, uh other a, women chatter teen day on tcm where i saw frisco jenny along with a number of other her of her movies all great but frisco uh, night nurse yeah oh i love yeah. night nurse yeah, it's, uh, the guy's the guy's uh, got a hot hand. What do you think makes him work so well? Just that snap, baby. Uh, <laughs> you know, no no fat whatsoever. I mean, obviously, like Lost Boys of the Road is yet another uh, yet another gold standard. It's it's that, but it's also like um, and part perhaps of what is appealing about the early thirties at the moment is there's an investment in the rhythms and textures of working people's lives, or in this case, hustling people's lives because so the, uh, Chatterton's character, the titular Lily Turner is a well-bred Buffalonian who as the movie opens is entering hastily into a marriage with a traveling vaudeville actor and you see uh her friends and family kind of 
uh, bemoaning this decision. Uh, and very quickly, it turns out that their uh, anxieties are not without foundation. He promises to take her on to New York City, but as soon as they're on the honeymoon train, as uh, you know, spills the beans and says, "No, in fact, we have to go on to like you know Hazelton or uh, you know something like this," and is just like working the Chautauqua tent. And from here, she kind of bounces on from one act to another, and then winds up on this basically snake oil sales tour uh, with Guy Kibbe's Doc Peter McGill, who's selling some kind of health tonic. Anywho, uh, and just a interest in life lived in the lower rungs, the more precarious rungs of the lower middle class or people who are clinging by their fingertips to that lower middle class uh, status. Also, um, Wellman in particular is able to get these moments of enormous emotional potency that aren't sentimental in the slightest, that don't petition or tug on the heartstrings whatsoever, but are nevertheless overwhelmingly poignant. Mm. I think particularly in like Wild Boys of the Road, um, there's a moment where Frankie Darrow and uh, his friend played by Edwin Phillips, um, Darrow, I think it is, has to sell his car or decides to sell his car in order to help the family out. My memory on this point might be a little faulty, um, but there's just a quick exchange where uh, Phillips, I think, tells him as he's, you know, very downcast, uh, having to get rid of the car. He's like, you know, I'm with you, right? And it's just this marvelous tossed off thing, but there's this enormous well of affection and solidarity that is packed up in it that is moving well beyond many much more overwrought attempts at such a thing. So that, too, is attractive about Wellman in this period, at least. And, you know, zero fat, zero fat whatsoever on these things. Yeah, I I mean, and it's also, I, I mean, I just love that those two come together. You know, it doesn't, it can be fast and also hit me hard, you know, it doesn't have to feel frivolous, like because of the speed. And that's, that's something that's, I mean, I'd be hard pressed to think of where that occurs anywhere now. Well, I mean, in, uh, in Lily Turner to return to that uh, picture after getting left holding the bag by the vaudevillian husband, uh, holding the bag in this case, meaning being left uh, pregnant without a father around, uh, the Chatterton character hooks up with this Carney Barker on uh, the show she's working on, played by Frank McHugh, and he agrees to marry her uh, so that the child will not be born a bastard. Um, child dies, uh, and after the child's death, she expresses relief. Um, yeah. Again, an absolute uh, absence of any uh, sentiment there. But sticks with this guy who is a falling down catastrophic alcoholic. Uh, it's more or less explicitly said 
they never consummate the marriage, then eventually the George Brent character joins this medicine show. She is participating in the show as the like picture of glowing feminine health, and he comes on as you know the strapping buck who is going to show how uh, you know if you guzzle some of uh, Doc McGill's tonic, uh, you'll uh, you know no longer be a ninety-eight pound weakling, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and they gravitate towards one another, and they wind up you know pitching in together, having an affair. Uh, her toper of a husband, seemingly either not noticing or not particularly concerned with the matter, uh, you know, mostly being like hung up with the bottle and the way that this delicate web of loyalties and obligations, uh, Lily to, or the Ruth Chatterton character, the Frank McHugh character, George Brent to Ruth Chatterton's character, all of them to one another. Um, it's done with such clarity and intelligence and enormous feeling. Um, mm. And the thing ends with Frank McHugh getting pitched out a window and breaking his back on the eve of when George Brent is about to whisk Ruth Chatterton away from all of this, uh, he's a Columbia grad uh, with an engineering degree put out of work by the depression who finally has a shot on a dam building project in Mexico city. Uh, but she can't go along because, uh, you know, Frank McHugh has a broken back and she feels that she has to, you know, fulfill her obligation. And the way that this is all like played out, Again, it's, you know, the bare minimum. There's an exchange between George Brent and Ruth Chatterton, which is, you know, it's as simple as that exchange in Wild Boys of the Road. It's, you know, just like, uh, I'm absolutely always going to love you. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a sort of taciturnity, a short, punchy, but extraordinarily, like, potent outpouring of emotion. And then, you know, that's that. Mm. um anyways yeah so these are some of the attractions at least of the you know bill wellman uh pre-codes particularly and i I wrote at some length about pre-code wellman's for moving image source several thousand years ago oh yeah i remember Uh, that but didn't actually get into lily turner at all um Mm. but it really did a number on me yeah. And and I mean I was also extremely impressed by a movie I hadn't watched before um Union Depot by uh somewhat unsung Alfred E Green starring uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. uh Joe, Joan Blondell and uh, of course Guy Kibbe. <laughs> Your soulmate. <laughs> um, every night Kibbe fest. <laughs> Kibbe. Um well I guess we kind of um We've logged a, a, bit, a bit of time here, but actually you're mentioning your piece, uh, um, moving, um, uh, moving image source piece. I, I was just curious if either of you wanted, wanted to just talk about anything you've been working on. Um, uh, Nick, have you been, you, you've been doing some writing and also uh, DVD commentary. Is anything coming up or, or uh, you'd like well, to mention? I mean, I, uh, I recorded 
something last week for John Farrow's Calcutta, and I might write something about Farrow in the not too distant future. Hmm. Um, and then of course I've got the uh, Substack popping off, uh, which I did a piece on uh, Catherine Benet's uh, excellent The Games of Countess Dollinger de Graz of Graz. Um, and I'm not sure what's going to be next there, but uh, mm. I'm sure it'll be uh, uh, more fun than a barrel of monkeys. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, right now, um, right now, I'm just working on a commentary track for Raoul Walsh movie, uh, The World in His Arms from 1952 with Gregory Peck. Um, uh, some adventures on the high seas, a schooner race between San Francisco circa 1850, uh, heading up north to Alaska. Huh. So that's principally where my attentions are focused and then figuring out what the next, uh, sub stack thing is going to be. And I got a yeah. couple ideas. Yeah. And then yeah, uh, just loads of commentary stuff. Yeah. One no, keeps I... busy. Yeah, I feel like every 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 other week I I pop something in that I watch, and then when I after after I'm done, when I click over to the extras, I, I find out that you've done the commentary. That happened, that happened to me with with um well at least with the booklet for a police story that happened for me uh, a couple weeks ago. Be a nightmarish experience. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. And and Nelly, you just did a program on uh, Screen Slate, right? Yes. So um, starting on Thursday, May 21st, uh, Screen Slate's going to be doing a weekly stream on our Twitch channel of various sort of artist films uh, working with different organizations in New York and around the world. So I'm co-programming that with John Derringer. And um, we're doing a career-spanning program of Cecilia Condit's work on the 21st, which should be pretty exciting. Um, we're showing a new piece by her and also a number of her sort of classic videos. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys are aware, but she she sort of became like a TikTok sensation. Hmm. Do you know this? No, I didn't. I did not. So, um, yeah, one of, I'm blanking right now, but one of her films, um, if you're familiar, a lot of them have this kind of like sing-songy uh, delivery of lines they're these kind of like witchy um suburban or experimental films but they have this kind of strange delivery sing-songy delivery that like just became like a sensation on tiktok with people um lip dubbing this you know pretty obscure piece of video art from like the late 80s i believe which you know, took her completely by surprise. And she ended up, you know, putting all of her work online to be like, well, if you're going to do this, like, why don't you watch the full videos? <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking to her. And I'm sure that that sort of strange afterlife or possibly in Michigan is the film that got uh, endlessly re remixed hmm. on TikTok. Uh, so that's on the 21st. On the 28th, we're going to be premiering a new film by Ken Jacobs with Anthology Film Archives. Oh, cool. It's uh, called A Film That Invites Pausing. And um, he made it sort of specifically for watching at home and recommends that you watch it once sort of in total all the way through. But uh, the ideal process would be then to go back and like watch with uh, pauses. 
And we'll also be showing some of his GIF work, uh, which if you follow him on social media, you've probably seen a lot of the 3D animated GIFs he's been making. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, and then we also have a program on June 4th with Speculative Place in Hong Kong. We're going to be showing a program of Simon Liu's work. He's a filmmaker who makes kind of experimental diary films, travel log type work, shows places like wavelengths or uh, projections at New York Film Festival and works sort of between Hong Kong and New York and the UK. And a number of his films sort of have been shot in and around a lot of the sort of unrest in Hong Kong. And that'll definitely be something that we talk about the sort of, I guess, uh, talking about like what's happening there. So these sort of uh, different ways that the pandemic is sort of playing out in different places and especially how it's interacting with sort of existing political realities in different Mm. cities. Um, And then we're also doing a program of the work by Frank Heath on the 11th. That's our our initial lineup. Aside from that, Tell Me, the series I programmed at Metrograph several years ago, is now on the Criterion channel. And um, all of the films became available on the channel on May 1st. But the series is officially launching on the 24th with a number of extras and a landing page where you can easily kind of access everything that's in the program. So that's pretty exciting. And and that's, yeah, that's a terrific program, which, which I watched in, in uh, uh, Metrograph. But, the, but it also just kind of harkens back to, you know, it's a good time as ever to, to, to watch you know, short length, mid length films. You know, films of all, all length that don't always get the same theatrical um, theatrical airtime. And and that program has is, is partly premised on on that, right? Well, I think it was sort of inevitable given the scope of the program that a lot of the work mm-hmm. were these kind of non commercial feminist films. Like you know, over the last fifty years, a lot of them are short form documentaries that were sort of or artist films. Um, Various things that circulate in, you know, outside of sort of traditional commercial markets where the sort of tyranny of the 90 minute feature is less pronounced. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, many of these movies are 20 minutes or like 55 minutes or basically just however long they need to be. Yeah. You know, if only everything was. (laughs) Yes. Well, I I think we can bring bring this in for a landing um thank you both for uh, for taking the time and come back anytime wherever here is i don't know where here is <laughs> all right a pleasure Nick. Okay. all right thank you and to all good night <laughs>